And after the ministry of the word, we'll sing from Psalm 91, stanzas 1 to 3. I encourage you to have your Bibles open this afternoon, once again, to 1 Peter chapter 3 and verses 18 to 22. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, what do you understand by the phrase, he descended into hell? We confess that every Sunday. There's a certain word order given. This phrase occurs after the references to his crucifixion, death, burial, and before his resurrection. We can come to the conclusion that it is assuming that it means Jesus spent three days between his death and resurrection in the company of the devil and demons. Is that the case? Did Jesus go into hell to preach his triumph to the devils? Did he go there to preach the gospel to the damned? Is that what 1 Peter chapter 3 means? And if it is, what comfort is it to know that Jesus descended into hell? Well, in order to answer those questions, we have to see the theme or the main point of these words of Scripture. And so consider God's word this afternoon from 1 Peter 3, verses 18 to 22, with the theme, He descended into hell, Christ's suffering, and our suffering. And we'll look at this passage with three points. First of all, Christ suffered to bring us to God. Secondly, the encouraging example of Noah's suffering. And then thirdly, we can be confident that God will save us. So first of all, Christ suffered to bring us to God. Well, the Apostles' Creed wasn't written overnight. For that matter, it was not approved by a single church council at one specific time. It's been with the church for several years. According to Philip Schaff, the expert on the creeds, it took shape from about 200 AD, where we find the earliest form of the creed, to around 650 A.D. The latest editions of the Creed include the phrase, He descended into hell. No one knows exactly why, but it was added. That's exactly what we confess in question 44, in that question, why is it added? There are some who say that this phrase means that Jesus went to the place of the devil and demons to the place of torment where unbelievers go. And they use this passage to make that point, as verses 18 and 19 say. It says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Those last words there, preach to the spirits in prison, are used as a, as a proof text by some to prove the doctrine of the intermediate state. Roman Catholicism traditionally has held to the doctrine that Hades has a number of rooms claiming that the church has the power to release souls that are captured there. 
When the creed says that Christ went into hell, they take it to mean that after his death, he went to what's called limbus patrum, that is, the place of the fathers, where the Old Testament saints awaited the revelation and application of Christ's redemption. When he went there, he released them from their limbo and opened the gates of paradise so that they could share in his salvation. Now, certainly that's a very convenient doctrine to hold to, especially if to support the doctrine of purgatory. The problem is, there's no biblical support for it. We should also mention that traditional, that the uh, traditional Lutheran position, they believe that this article is referring to the first step of Christ's exaltation. According to history, Martin Luther preached a powerful sermon about Christ hitting the doors of Hades with his empty cross and crying, victory, victory. The view is, after his death, Christ went to the disobedient imprisoned spirits in hell, declaring his victory over sin. Luther said that if Jesus descended into hell, he spent three days thumbing his nose at Satan. Now that might be some wishful thinking. Yet there's still no satisfying view of 1 Peter 3 here or of the phrase of the creed. A passage like this does not serve as a, as a support of a doctrine like purgatory. And instead, we have to emphasize what the Bible is clear upon. And the Bible is clear. Peter is not saying that Jesus went to the home of the damned. Consider carefully what Peter is saying here. He writes that Christ suffered once for sins. We take that as a reference to what he experienced on the cross. As Christ was forsaken by God, the catechism says, so that we might never be forsaken by God. And during our most difficult times, we can be assured that he has delivered us from hell itself. Jesus experienced hell on the cross. He didn't go to it after his death. Clearly, every gospel from Matthew to John shows how he was forsaken by the Father at Calvary. We know that from his words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We know that from the darkness of the cross, as God removed every trace of his grace, And from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness. The blackness symbolized that God was bringing judgment. And when Christ was there, he experienced no grace. All that was left was wrath, the wrath of God, the anguish and the terror and agony of hell. Not only that congregation, remember the words of Jesus to the criminal. Assuredly, I say to you that this day you will be with me in paradise. Jesus spoke of today and not sometime afterwards when he may have gone to hell. Jesus would be in paradise and he would take this believing criminal along with him. Paradise is not hell, the place of the damned. 
It's not limbus patrum. But heaven, it's the place where all the saints, starting with Adam and Eve, down to John the Baptist and all the saints throughout history who have gone to be with the Lord are right now. The Bible says that Jesus died on the cross. His body was placed in the ground. But Christ himself went to the Father. His spirit was immediately taken up into heaven. And so if the traditional view of Rome and, and Lutheranism are not right, how then are we to understand what Peter is saying? Well, when it comes to understanding any difficult passage, we have to pay close attention to the context. Peter was writing to those who found themselves surrounded by hostile unbelievers. They were the minority. They were suffering. Some of that suffering was for, for doing right. Peter was writing to encourage his readers that they would not be without hope. The whole argument is that the church should be encouraged to go on. Why should they go on? Because our Lord willingly suffered physical harm, even death, for the sake of our eternal gain, that he might bring us to God. If Jesus went through that suffering, then they could be encouraged in their own suffering. Peter was contrasting how temporary it was to what has been accomplished by the Lord. Just consider what Jesus' suffering means. Jesus' death was for sin, he says in verse 18. The just suffering for the unjust. More literally, the righteous one paid the penalty for sin for the unrighteous ones. What's more, Peter says, he was put to death in the flesh. His physical body was put to death. He was just like us, flesh. He came in the flesh. And he was put to death in the flesh. He suffered hell in the flesh. Why did he do that? Peter says he did it that he might bring us to God. If Jesus did not suffer eternal death on the cross, his suffering would, have no, would not have any meaning for us, congregation. We would then ourselves have to experience the very worst punishment. But we understand the creed to mean that Jesus did experience hell on the cross. That brings us great comfort. Lord's Day 16 talks about our greatest sorrows and temptations. With that phrase, we think right away of the worst things that may have happened to us. Just think for a minute of the trials that you're facing right now or maybe have faced. Think of the hardest ones. When we go through that, we might conclude that God wasn't with us. The pain keeps coming back. The aching void of grief is overwhelming. But the gospel is this. The Lord reminds us that our temporary suffering in this world can't be compared to the curse that Jesus went through for us. Not only that, the temporary suffering of this world 
can't be compared to the eternal life that we have now in him. Some say when going through a difficult time, this is hell on earth. They break their arm, they say, it hurts like hell. Sometimes Christians say that too. The congregation, we have no idea what we're saying. If we claim we're experiencing hell on earth, we have no idea what we're talking about. There's no comparison to our struggles here and to Jesus' agony. Those flippant words have no place on the lips of a Christian, no matter how difficult the trial. We've been brought to God, Peter says, how? Through the suffering of Christ, once for all on the cross. And what a blessing that is. May that be an encouragement to you, whatever you're dealing with, knowing that the Lord has suffered agony for you to have eternal life. May that be your personal comfort and your greatest temptation because that's what Jesus' descend into hell means. Now, if Jesus did not go to the bottomless pit, if that's not what Peter is saying, how do we understand these words? Well, it leads us to our second point. Consider, secondly, the encouraging example of Noah's suffering. Verse 19 says that he, that is, Jesus, went to and preached to the spirits in prison. Verse 19 begins with a preposition by whom, which refers back to verse 18, which says that he was made alive by the Spirit. That describes Jesus' resurrection on Easter Sunday. as He was made alive by the Spirit's activity as opposed to being put to death in the flesh. He was brought into the spiritual realm by the Spirit to do something through the Spirit. But that's where this passage gets a little difficult. I don't think I need to tell you this. This is a very disputed passage, even by respected theologians. The issues that are raised are, who are the spirits in prison? Fallen angels? Unbelievers? And what did Christ preach? A second chance for repentance? Final condemnation? And when did he preach? In the days of Noah or after his resurrection? And there are various answers that are given, plenty of different commentary that is put upon these words. But the one interpretation that seems to satisfy the issues the most is the interpretation from Augustine. That this passage doesn't refer to something Jesus did between his death and resurrection, but what he did in the spiritual realm or through the Spirit at the time of Noah. If you just take the words spirits in prison by themselves, we might say, well, this is referring to fallen angels. That's the way it's used, for example, in the book of Jude. The word spirit can sometimes refer to angels, either good or bad, or it can refer to the human spirit, those who have died. Now, some say that when spirit is found without a defining, uh, without a defining phrase attached, the spirit of the man, it can refer to human spirit, but it is referring to an angel or a spirit of God. Now that's true, you do need a qualification. And if there isn't any, if, if there isn't qualification, when we have to, then we have to assume that it's speaking of 
a spirit in prison, a fallen angel that Jesus, after his resurrection, went to preach to them in prison. But there is a qualification of what kind of spirit is meant. And that comes from the context. Notice verse 20. It says, these, these spirits formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. The word formally disobeyed, the word disobey means refuse to be persuaded. The tense of the word shows that it was done in the past. And so this indicates that only human spirits were meant by Peter because nowhere in the Bible are angels ever said to have disobeyed during the time of the building of the ark. Genesis chapter 6 clearly says that men provoke God to bring a flood on the earth. God was patient. He was long-suffering in the days of Noah. Who was he long-suffering with? With sinful mankind. Who he gave the opportunity to repent for 120 years. So Peter seems to be referring to human spirits here. But why does Peter refer to spirits if he had in view the disobedience of human beings who not only have spirits, but bodies also? The best way to understand this is that now there's spirits in prison. He speaks of them presently being spirits. Formerly they were alive in Noah's day. He speaks that way in English. We rather speak that way in English as well. Just to, get, just to give an example, someone here might say, I remember our pastor when he was a seminary student. That's an appropriate thing to say, even though he wasn't ordained at the time. It, it means that you knew your pastor when he was still a seminary student. And so Christ preaching to the spirits in prison can mean Christ pre- preaching to people who are now spirits in prison when they used to be people on earth. And that view seems to make the most sense when we take into account the rest of what Peter has written. For example, he mentions that Christ preached in the Spirit through the Old Testament prophets in chapter 1. As well, Peter specifically calls Noah a prophet, a herald of righteousness, as we see in 2 Peter. And so that shows more clearly what Peter means here. Furthermore, by saying that Christ went and preached rather than saying that Jesus preached, Peter is saying that Christ was active during these times throughout history. That's his point. Noah and his family were a minority. They were only eight souls compared to the unrighteous and the ungodly, the world that was around them. And yet Noah, through the spirit of Christ, preached to them. He preached to them repentance. It was the right message to bring. Now it is possible to take the view that Jesus preached to fallen angels. You can say that. You can say that exegetically. But the trouble is, Peter's readers would have a hard time knowing what he was talking about. Jesus through the Spirit went and preached to men who were at one time disobedient, That agrees with the larger context. Because remember, 
the church here is suffering. They were the righteous minority. They were surrounded by hostility. But they were called to be a witness to Christ's power through their testimony. And they were assured of their salvation. Peter is setting up a parallel between Noah's situation and the situation of his readers. Noah was a minority among scoffers in a wicked world. Noah realized that judgment would come soon on the world. And so what did he do? He witnessed boldly to those around him through the Spirit of Christ. You see, by saying this, Peter was speaking to them of the reality of Christ's work in the spiritual realm. That that at all times, Christ has been with his saints. The same Lord Jesus Christ who suffered to bring us to God. And he's saying, you don't need to fear. God is with you just as he was with Noah. God is long-suffering just as he was in Noah's day. God wants to use you just as he used Noah to be a witness for Christ. Now, not all Christians suffer the same way. Physically, I mean. Some of our suffering can be in terms of being a minority at school or at work. You suffer sometimes for being a disciple of Jesus Christ. We all do if we're known as to be Christians. Peter goes on to say in chapter 4, verse 4, that non-Christians think it's strange that you don't join them in their debauchery, in their drinking parties. That sounds like a challenge that can be for a a young lady or a young man within a, a public university. You know, you don't go along with the crowd. You have to stand out. If you're struggling in a similar, similar way today because you're a Christian, brother or sister, take this passage as an encouragement. You're not alone. God wants to use you. You need to be willing to suffer if need be to bring others to God just as Christ was willing to suffer and to die that he might bring us to God. Noah is an encouragement to perseverance. That brings us to our last point. Thirdly, we can be confident that God will save us. And that applies to the baptism of Shauna today. Just as he saved Noah, he will save us. The comparison between us and Noah is continued. Eight souls were saved. How? Through water. The water was judgment. But for Noah, the water was salvation. It was a sort of baptism. Peter says this to make us see the connection between Noah and us. We've been baptized, and in baptism, we were buried together with Christ so that we're being dead, so that we've been made dead to the world and to the flesh, and so that we live to God. And in that way, baptism is an antitype to the baptism of Noah. It corresponds to the sign of salvation and its seal. And what does it mean that baptism saves us? 
Not that baptism has a magical way of saving us, but that it represents our salvation so much so that the newness of life in Jesus Christ is sealed to us through the sign and seal itself. It goes to show us how close the relationship is between baptism and what it points to. But in case we think that baptism has some magical power, Peter adds that it's not the taking away of the filth of the flesh, but a clear conscience. That's another way of saying forgiveness of sins. And where does that forgiveness come from? It comes from the Lord Jesus Christ, who Peter says was raised from the dead and who went into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having made subjected to him. We're saved by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. And it completes the picture, doesn't it? The suffering of Christ, the suffering Christ rather is now reigning victorious. Since he has suffered for us, we can be assured that he is with us and that he's looking out for us. This is the gospel, which we need to hear again, congregation. The Lord would have us know that even in our greatest sorrows and temptations, he has not deserted us. He suffered the agony of hell. On the cross, Christ was deserted, forsaken. God's grace was withheld from him. God's wrath was poured out on him. All that happened in our suffering here so that we don't wrongly conclude that we're forsaken by his grace. We never taste hell in this life, nor will we in the life to come if we have faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone. So let us be confident in him that he will save us. Amen.